Harold Holt's favorite poem was If by Rudyard Kipling. It goes like this. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing their numbers and blaming it on you. If you can trust yourself when all men doubt you. If you can force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve your turn long after they are gone and so hold on when there is nothing in you except the will which says to them, hold on, you'll be a man. The prime minister apparently thought of it as a mantra. He'd recite the lines to himself in times of turmoil or stress. Hold on, you'll be a man. I don't know if the words passed through his mind when he entered the Pacific Ocean on December 17, 1967, never to return again. But in doing so, he left behind not one, but two women, forced to reckon with his absence time and time again. Because the public just couldn't let him go. I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, I'll discuss a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today, I'd like you to meet someone who left behind more than just loved ones. He left behind the country he was elected to lead. In 1967, Harold Holt wasn't just some man walking into the ocean. He was Australia's prime minister. And his status is basically the only reason people think he disappeared. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. This is going to sound strange, given the name of the show. But Harold Holt didn't actually disappear. He drowned. Official investigations and all credible sources have said as much since nightfall on day one. 
So why am I telling you his story? Two words. Conspiracy theories. But before we jump down any rabbit holes, I want to walk you through what actually happened in the days leading up to the Prime Minister's untimely death. It's December 15th. Harold Holt has just finished work for the year, and he couldn't be happier about it. He'd just spent the year knee-deep in controversy. He received backlash after passing some policies that went against the conservative grain of his party. Like relaxing immigration laws, particularly for non-white immigrants. And his ardent support of the United States, Lyndon B. Johnson, and the Vietnam War has been rubbing constituents the wrong way. Not to mention, his temper has caused some problems. In April, he verbally attacked a journalist in public. One month later, he broke parliamentary tradition by angrily interrupting the maiden speech of a brand new member. Now that the government's out of session, Harold's taking a much-needed vacation. His wife, Zara, is staying behind in Canberra, the capital of Australia. She's busy planning their annual Christmas party, so Harold heads to their beach house in Portsea alone. Portsea is the perfect place to get away from politics. It's just outside of Harold's hometown of Melbourne. If you follow the curve of the city's bay southward, out to a narrow peninsula, you'll find the small beach community jutting out onto the open ocean. It's the perfect place to relax. Beautiful, quiet, surrounded by the sound of ocean tides and not much else. Plus, with Zara at home, Harold can freely spend time with the other woman in his life, his rumored mistress, Marjorie Gillespie. Marjorie owns the beach house right next door. Harold and Zara actually bought their land from Marjorie and her husband back in 1960. After that, they all became good friends. And Harold and Marjorie's friendship reportedly blossomed into something more. Though it's always been unconfirmed. On some level, Marjorie suspects Zara knows about her relationship with Harold. The Prime Minister has a reputation for being a bit of a womanizer. In fact, Zara and Harold's relationship most likely started as an affair, while Zara was with her first husband. And it's basically an open secret that Harold has continued chasing other women since the two tied the knot 20 years ago. Though even his biographer had a hard time confirming or denying any of the alleged affairs. Despite all the rumors, Marjorie hasn't lost any love for her own husband, Winston, or the life they share together and the friendship between the couples genuinely works. So, when Marjorie bumps into Harold at the local fish store shortly after he arrives in Portsea, she invites him to have drinks. With her and her husband. Come evening, Marjorie's sipping some cocktails between her husband and her alleged lover. When she looks over at Harold, he seems genuinely happy. He's not thinking about his image, his country, or his future. When she asks about his plans for the rest of the weekend, he mentions a dinner party that he'll be throwing on Saturday. But he doesn't mention his plans for Sunday. Not in front of Winston. Harold calls Marjorie early in the morning on Sunday, December 17th. 
He wants to go see this English boat, the lively lady, sail into port. It's a big to-do, and Marjorie's interested in going with him. She just doesn't know if she can. Since their cocktails the other night, she's had guests come to stay, two friends from out of town, and her 20-year-old daughter, Viner. She can't just leave them alone. But Harold doesn't take no for an answer. He tells her to bring everyone. He'll pick them up at 11. Case closed. Now, I don't know where Winston is in all of this, but he doesn't tag along. And the original trip turns out to be underwhelming. By the time they actually get to the port, they can't find a good vantage point to really see anything. So at the last minute, they decide to reroute. Cheviot Beach is close by, and Harold wants to work up an appetite before lunch. They can go for a quick dip in the ocean. The group arrives just after 12 p.m., and to their delight, the beach is virtually empty. The lack of crowds could have something to do with the lively lady's big arrival, or it could just be the water. Looking out, the Pacific is clearly rolling. There are visible currents and eddies swirling all around the cove. Harold knows the area and says he's never seen the water levels so high. It's especially strange because there hasn't been any unusual weather lately. No storms, nothing. The conditions look bad enough that most of the party decides to skip swimming. Viner and one of the house guests goes for a walk along the sand. Marjorie chooses to perch up on a beach towel, a healthy distance away from the waves. Her other house guest, a man named Alan Stewart, is a bit bolder. He wades into the water a little, but as soon as he feels the current pulling at his toes, he moves closer to shore. Harold, on the other hand, has no reservations. Maybe he's just hot. Maybe he's trying to impress Marjorie. Harold's a bit of a show-off, and he places a lot of value on strength, masculinity, and perseverance. He's almost drowned twice before, spearfishing in similarly dangerous conditions. As Harold enters the water, Marjorie doesn't really think much about it. Nobody does. He's the prime minister just going for a swim. He flashes her a smile and dives into the waves. Then he gets smaller and smaller until Marjorie blinks and he's gone without a scream, without any signs of a struggle. Marjorie will later tell a reporter, it was like a leaf being taken out. It was so quick and so final. But that sense of finality only comes with hindsight. In the moment, Marjorie and Alan Stewart just can't believe their eyes. They spend 10 more minutes peering out into the ocean, waiting. I have to imagine they're in shock. They were only at the beach for like five minutes before Harold disappeared into the water. Maybe they're hoping he's playing some kind of joke, that Harold will pop back up in a few minutes, waving and laughing. But when that doesn't happen, Alan races to get help. By the time he's in a car, it's sometime around 12.15 p.m. For Marjorie, time feels endless as she waits there on the beach. Then, once news reaches officials, everything happens so fast. 
By 1.30, the amateur divers arrive. Then comes the helicopters, the boats, the police divers, the naval diving teams. By 1.45, the reporters have arrived. It's no longer Marjorie Gillespie holding her breath, scanning the horizon. It's all of Australia, staring intently at their television sets. There is no mention of Marjorie in any broadcast. It's likely no one wants to mention a prime minister's alleged mistress on air, especially given the circumstances. But she works extensively with investigators, speaking candidly about what happened that day and in the days leading up to it. Reporters will later refer to her as a friend or a neighbor, if they pay her any attention at all. For the most part, Marjorie's free to mourn in private. But the same definitely can't be said for Harold's wife, Zara. It's December 17, 1967, about four hours after the Prime Minister of Australia disappeared into the Pacific Ocean. After the news reaches his wife, Zara, one of the first questions she asks is, was he wearing his sand shoes or his flippers? When she finds out he was wearing sand shoes, she exclaims, oh, he's gone. As in, he's dead. Now, her reaction may sound cold, but I think there's more to it than that. Sometimes when tragedy seems inevitable, it's easiest to expect the worst, to set your expectations low. That way, when the worst happens, the fall doesn't hurt quite so bad. Planning for the worst and hoping for the best is a form of self-preservation and something that has gotten me through so much in my own sister's case. So I can definitely understand this sentiment. And Zara doesn't abandon hope. The very next thing she does is board a government plane to assist in the search effort. It's her husband after all, the man she loves. The one whose infidelity she says she's put up with for 20 years. Even after his death, Zara tells the press that her husband was, quote, having affairs everywhere. Apparently, she always wanted to tell Marjorie about the half dozen other women Harold had been with, to let her know she wasn't special. But she didn't. She kept quiet. The truth is, She'd long accepted her husband's cheating. She decided that a life with him, no matter how painful, was better than the alternative. But now, the alternative was staring her in the face. Zara's plane lands in Melbourne around 4.25 p.m., and a police escort drives her to Cheviot Beach. The news isn't good. Rescue divers aren't getting far because the currents are too strong. One diver later tells reporters, the undertow was trying to pull us into the channel and out to sea. It was too rough to be able to search properly. Then around 5.45 p.m., there's an opening. The ocean is finally calm enough to conduct a thorough search. But the problem is, it's been more than five hours since Harold was last seen. The average person is able to tread water for anywhere from two to five hours before succumbing to exhaustion. 
they can hold their breath for about a minute. Harold's an experienced swimmer and athlete, so he might be able to beat those numbers. But at this point, it's a close call. In the coming weeks, more than 340 people will continue to look for the Prime Minister in vain. Eventually, the search operation will be reduced to a small daily patrol of Cheviot Beach, just in case something washes ashore. It's equal parts due diligence and theatrics. But the sad reality is, nobody expects to find anything. By the time the sun sets on day one, less than 10 hours after Harold entered the water, any chance of finding the Prime Minister is gone. Investigators are convinced the tides carried the Prime Minister far out to sea, long before rescue teams even arrived. Just two days after he was last seen, Harold Holt is officially presumed dead. And Zara is left to deal with the press, the interviews, the photo ops. An entire nation watches her grieve, fixates on her reaction, and they never see her cry, not once. Later on, she'll say it's like an iron curtain slammed down in her mind. One she keeps closed throughout the whole affair. She's been a politician's wife almost as long as her husband's been a politician. She's learned how to hold her cards close to the chest, how to hide behind a public facade for emotional protection. As the first lady, she's expected to remain calm, controlled, dignified, regardless of her circumstance, regardless of her grief. And that's especially true when the cameras are rolling. Occasionally, when she's alone at night, Zara lets the iron curtain down and she cries. Her sister once opens a door to find her sobbing on the bathroom floor. She's so embarrassed by her own emotions, she hides her face with a sponge. Grief is hard enough. I can't even begin to imagine what it must be like to feel obligated to hide it, even from those you love. It sounds like torture. But for Zara, life's about to get even more complicated. See, while she's still in mourning, the conspiracy theories start. A small but vocal slice of the public starts to turn Harold's death into something it wasn't. And many of these baseless claims continue to circulate to this day. One of the first theories to surface is that Harold died by suicide, not drowning. Allegedly, he was depressed after a difficult year in office, so he walked into the Pacific Ocean to end his life. On purpose. A few months later, a Melbourne paper called the Sunday Observer publishes an article suggesting that the United States Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA, assassinated Harold. According to conspiracy theorists, he had some secret plan to pull out of the Vietnam War, and the United States couldn't let that happen. Now, and I can't overstate this, there is absolutely no evidence to prove that this is true. If anything, many Australians thought that the Prime Minister was too pro-America, too invested in the United States dealings in the Vietnam War. He once announced that he was all the way with LBJ, and it sent his constituency into an uproar. 
LBJ attends Harold's memorial service and weeps right alongside Zara. It's a rare, tender moment from the scotch-loving, hyper-masculine president from Texas. But Johnson loved Harold, and the love was mutual. The prime minister certainly wasn't on the verge of abandoning the Vietnam War. Now, if you're Zara, you know all this. The CIA didn't assassinate your husband, and he didn't die by suicide either. Yes, he's had a hard year in office, but he always responded to adversity with energy and passion, occasionally anger, but never hopelessness. Every eyewitness reported him in great spirits that afternoon, upbeat, smiling. He was reckless in the face of death, but he didn't want to die. As his wife, you know that in your bones. But as much as you want to ignore the rumors, it's not that simple. The whole event is international news. For months, your husband's death follows you everywhere you go, and the whispers are always close behind. You don't want to dignify them with a response, but you can't help it. So you end up telling reporters that he was too, quote, selfish for suicide. You figure if you don't speak up, the only alternative is letting the conspiracy theories fester and mutate. About two years after Harold's death in 1969, Zara remarries. She never leaves the public spotlight. She does promotions for Maxwell House Instant Coffee and some commercials for Amana Kitchen Appliances. By 1983, she's in her 70s. She's done everything she can to move on, despite the conspiracy theories still surrounding her former husband's death. Then, a book gets published. It's called The Prime Minister Was a Spy, and it's written by a British author named Anthony Gray. He argues that Harold Holt was actually a spy for communist China the whole time. The Prime Minister never drowned. When he felt like he was going to get caught, he faked his own death. He dove into the Pacific Ocean and boarded a Chinese submarine hidden off the coast of Cheviot Beach. Gray believes Harold is still somewhere in China, alive. The book is a bestseller. It doesn't matter that it's ridiculed by experts and biographers for its wild inaccuracies. People take the book at face value. They gossip, speculate, replay Harold's death over and over again. For Harold's children and Zara, it's a huge slap in the face, an insult to his memory. Imagine a bunch of strangers telling you that the person you loved wasn't who he said he was and willingly left you. Not to mention, Harold's grandchildren have either little or no memory of him. They can only go off of what they're told. So they grow up with these false ideas already attached to their grandfather's legacy. And as easy as they are to debunk, at some point, it's only natural to wonder, could any of it possibly be real? Suicide, an assassination, a communist spy, even if it is just for a second. The book is still selling copies when Zara passes away five years later in 1989, and its conspiracy theories never die. 
They become so persistent that in 2005, the coroner of Australia's Victoria region feels compelled to reopen an investigation into Harold's death. Once again, he concludes that by far, the most likely cause of death is accidental drowning. But it's still not enough. A new theory, the latest, appears three years after the coroner's investigation in 2008. A documentary suggests that Harold was on morphine when he entered the water at Cheviot Beach, and the drug contributed to his death. It's the least explosive of all the theories in that it doesn't deny he drowned. And at the very least, it gets one thing right. Harold had been prescribed morphine for a minor shoulder injury. But according to his family, he rarely took painkillers, even when prescribed and no one reported any strange behavior that day at the beach. Now, I'm not even remotely related to Harold Holt. I have no personal stake in this story. But even just talking about all of this, I feel like I have whiplash. Essentially, every expert out there, both living and dead, has said that Harold Holt drowned. All of them deny the conspiracies. Political historian Ian Hancock has called them not only false, but absurd. But for some reason, people would rather believe that Harold Holt, a notorious anti-communist, fled to China as a communist spy than believe he drowned. Which brings me to one question. Why? To understand why Harold Holt's legacy has been so haunted by conspiracy theories, I want to travel back in time again to December 22, 1967, five days after he was last seen, and three days after he was officially presumed dead, the day of his memorial service. More than 2,000 people pile into St. Paul's Cathedral in Melbourne, Australia. In addition to family and friends, 30 reporters are given seats. A static camera films from the back of the long hall. World leaders pay their respects, including US President Johnson, the UK Prime Minister Harold Wilson, and Prince Charles of England. 10,000 more line the streets outside, listening. We mourn today for a man who loved Australia, who lived for Australia, who gave his best for Australia. And as we commend him now into God's eternal keeping, we thank God for giving Harold Holt to us for a time, for what he was and for what he did. It's a very public affair for a very public figure. And on some level, the answer is as simple as that. As Prime Minister Harold Holt's death didn't just affect his loved ones, it affected an entire country. And in many ways, the world. I've covered disappearances where the public gets wrapped up in a case on a national scale before. Aton Pates is a great example. But after Harold Holt's so-called disappearance, it wasn't just sympathy or fascination, or voyeurism that caused people to tune in. It was also grief. 
millions of people grieved, alongside Marjorie Gillespie, alongside Zara Holt and her children. I'll always focus my stories on those most impacted by any tragedy. But in this case, there are literally too many people to count. A country mourned the loss of someone who was deeply important to them. Maybe not on a personal level, but his actions and choices affected their lives. Australians elected him to speak for them, to fight for them, to represent them on a global scale. The whole nation felt the pain of losing that representation. As Harold Biographer put it, even people who showed little interest in the living politician felt a genuine sadness at the death of a decent man. Harold Holt's story is one example of what loss can look like on a global scale. But it's not the only one. At the time of his drowning, the world had just experienced the sudden death of another world leader. Five years earlier, in 1963, thousands of people witnessed the assassination of US President John F. Kennedy, live on television. And just like Harold Holt, the event went on to inspire countless conspiracy theories that are still around today. In many ways, Kennedy and Holt were parallel figures. Charming, extroverted, known for sportsmanship, and delivering passionate speeches. Both represented change and promised progressive new beginnings for their countries. But they died long before completing their terms. And so people have insisted on rewriting their endings. But while the comparisons are easy to draw, Harold's death has an extra element that makes people even more likely to speculate. It was a total accident. Psychologically, it's human nature to crave control, to want explanations for senseless or random events. Saying Harold Holt died by suicide or took morphine or hatched a secret plan that got him killed gives him some agency in his own death. And it allows us, as onlookers, to distance ourselves from the uncomfortable truth. We're all susceptible to the elements, to chance, to simple bad luck. So conspiracies can actually be a way of coping. Journalist Ron Rosenblum has studied theorists who are obsessed with JFK's death. He wrote, their investigation of the assassination is their way of mourning, a continuation of his last rites that they can't abandon. Unlike the rest of us, they haven't stopped grieving. Of course, that doesn't change the fact that there are real damaging consequences for the victim, for their memory, and their loved ones. It also doesn't mean that all conspiracy theories are acts of mourning. Take the book, The Prime Minister Was a Spy. It's a classic case of leveraging tragedy for profit. And this doesn't just happen with public figures. It happens with a lot of missing person cases. And there's no excuse for it. Putting out glaring misinformation for fame or profit is just wrong. Not only does it corrupt the memory of those that have been lost, but it can outright traumatize those who are left behind. Now, it's true. 
not all conspiracies are lies or inherently false. They're theories, suggestions of what could have happened. With unsolved cases, they're basically all we have. But when theories are completely divorced from facts, when there's no interest in actually bringing closure to those who need it, they're just cruel. So for everyone listening, I'm going to restate the facts again. On December 17, 1967, Harold Holt swam into the Pacific Ocean and in a senseless tragedy died. He was a prime minister, an Australian, an athlete, a father, a husband, a lover, and a cheat. He was a charming, loving, flawed man, and half a century later, his memory deserves to be set free. Next episode, another story with a known ending. After Sheila and Kate Lyon disappear from their local mall in 1975, the answers take 40 years to unravel. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to listen to this episode, 30 people disappeared in the United States alone. If you or someone you know needs assistance with a missing persons case, please visit seasonofjustice.org. Season of Justice is a nonprofit organization that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. For full disclosure, I am a member of the board. It's a great resource for both law enforcement and families in order to bring closure to those impacted by unsolved violent crime. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Disappearances stars Sarah Turney and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound design by Alex Button, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Disappearances was written by Nora Battelle, with writing assistance by Connor Sampson and Allie Wicker. Fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice.